0: okay that's that's a good distinction too so pagan says there is no God secular says I am God so a secularist is a non-theist okay what about okay right 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 so you could say that paganism believes in some sort of deity whereas a secular person believes in no deity okay those are all great and I think those definitions are true let me give you a definition uh, of secular that I think uh, will help for the discussion here I'm not saying that what you have said is wrong I think you're actually correct Uh, secularism has a wide variety of meanings but I'm going to define secular for our purposes today as being post-Christian, being post-Christian. Now, it distinguishes itself from paganism because paganism is pre-Christian, right? A pagan person has never heard the gospel, ostensibly, and so they, even, they haven't had a chance to reject Christianity. A secular person has heard the gospel, has heard Christianity, and has now rejected it. All right. Let me give you an example of what I mean. I, was, uh, I there was a guy that I work with or used to work with, and he, we we discussed philosophy. He helps with some weird New Age uh, um, um, Eastern view. I couldn't even articulate it if I tried. But we discussed philosophy and talked about worldviews. And uh, after maybe six months of discussion, I decided to invite him to church one day. I thought it would be fine. I said, why don't you just come to my church and see how the other half lives. You might get a kick out of it. You know, I just wanted to get him in the door so he could hear the gospel clearly. Um, so he he did respond for a day. we did it as an email, and he sent me email back the following day and and he, what he said was very telling he said i don 't need to he'd never been in a Christian evangelical church as far as I know, but his response was i don 't need to go to your church to find out about Christianity because I already know what it 's all about and i don 't want to have anything to do with it okay so his response was i 've been there i 've done that we grew up in a Christian i grew up in a christian nation quote unquote I right, use that term loosely and so he knew what Christianity was all about before even listening to the to the propositions of Christianity. Okay, and that's what it means, as far as I understand it, to be secular. Okay, He's rejected Christianity outright. I've been there. I've done that. I don't need to hear what you have to say. Let me give you some formal definitions. This one's uh, by James Turner. And by the way, I want to recommend a book to you. This I'm going to be able to cover this history very, very briefly. James Turner, in a book called Without God, Without Creed... Um, it's by, uh, uh, published by Johns, Johns Hopkins University Press. it was a 93 publication. He does a great job of talking about why we are in the situation we're in. Um, the subtitle is The Origins of Unbelief in America. James Turner, T-U-R-N-E-R. And by the way, I had some uh, bibliographies. I didn't expect the response in the first day yesterday, and I don't have any more copies. But if you want a bibliography, I have a full bibliography with uh, where I rate the different books. I give you a little blurb about what it's about, and then I tell you if it's a beginner, intermediate, or advanced reading. I can email that to you or mail it to you. My information's on the back of your, your handout. So please let me know if you want that. Um, I list about 50 books, so it's a pretty thorough bibliography if you're interested in that. But James Turner said this about secularism. And this is, this is bringing out some more of the aspects of what secular means. He says, secularization implies the separation of religious from worldly concerns and therefore of God's realm from the everyday world that man inhabits. Okay? And some of you pointed that out, I think. It's a separation of, of, of God's realm of influence from man's. J.P. Moreland said this, secular is having little or no understanding of a Christian way of seeing the world. Okay? So it rejects Christianity and then it doesn't allow Christian ideas to influence the way that the secular world uh, presents itself. Okay? Nor does it see the Christian worldview as important as an important participant in the way we as a society frame and debate issues in the public square. Okay? And most of us experience this every day. We look at the newspapers, we look at television. Christianity and Christian ideals are entirely excluded for the most part. And again, there are exceptions. There are good things happening in certain areas. But generally, this is what we see. That's what secular means. All right? So we, uh, we see uh, we see results of secularization all over the place. Let me give you two examples. Uh, an individual, a friend of mine, wrote a letter to a union that he's a part of, and he's, a, he's a part of a teacher's union, and he tried to present the idea that um, there actually was a right and wrong way to do school for kids and that the Bible teaches certain things about, about what is right and wrong and we should adopt the Bible's view because he believes it's right now if we believe something's right we're not going to present it wishy-washy right? we're not going to say well maybe it's true we're going to say this is the way God has determined things to go and that's how we're going to present our view right I mean typically so here's what the union here's how the union responded he said your letter stresses your religious beliefs and implies that these beliefs should be the rule in our public school which is how we'd expect him to write it one purpose of this coalition is to prevent a single religious belief from being fostered in our multicultural society. I like that term? We have many members who describe themselves as being from religious backgrounds. We also have members that reject the existence of a god. The New York State Teachers Union takes no position at all, but instead tries to help every member have tolerance for all. Okay. Now you see what's going on here? They say, we're not going to accept this idea of uh, that you're trying to present because it's just one idea among many. And what we actually find in practice is that religious ideas are rejected outright. Right? If you, if you say it's a religious view, you're not even allowed to present it. No precision. No precision. Right. Well, Christ, the Christian view as opposed to secular human view. Sure, sure. And it, which is a form of religion. Yeah. Yeah, it would be interesting to um, write out the properties of a religion and see how many of them apply to Christian or to us to a secular Mindset. I mean religion has certain things that make it a religion, right? Uh, A a belief in something transcendent we could imply that or we could we could see Secularization as having a belief in something transcendent even though they wouldn't word it that way. That's a good point. That's a really good point Uh, Let me give you one other example We see secularization showing its its uh, head in in radical, what I call radical naturalism. Radical naturalism, and this is a rejection of transcendence. Okay. Um, People like Steven Pinker at MIT and Peter Singer at uh, I think it's Harvard. um, They are taking uh, evolutionary theory to its moral extreme. Now I'm going to I'm going to relate a little uh, story to you. I don't. Uh, tell you the story to shock you. It's gonna shock you, but I don't tell it to you for the purpose of shocking you. Um, I tell it to you because this is the direction that we're going as far as the culture goes and as far as the university goes. Now, the examples I'm giving are from professors that are teaching at Ivy League world-class universities like MIT and Harvard. So this isn't some article I picked up off, off the back of the paper and I'm gonna read it to you because I think it's, uh, it's shock, it has shock value, okay? I think this is this is gonna become more and more mainstream. People like Pinker and, and uh, uh, Peter Singer are arguing now that um, personhood and being a human person is degreed, okay? So you can be more or less of a human person. And they define humanness in terms of your functional states by what you do. So um, maybe a full person, if you're a 100% person, you have the ability to walk, you have the ability to communicate, you have the ability to reason, you have a certain level of IQ, all right? And then it starts to go down from there. Okay, you understand what I'm saying? Humanness is degreed and it's in defined in terms of functional states. Um, so what they're arguing then is that an infant is not a person. Okay, An infant is not a human person. Therefore we shouldn't look at uh, mothers who infanticide their infants um, because we shouldn't look at them as monsters because really they're not really killing a human person they're just killing some kind of a, an entity that is non-human, all right? And, and Pinker actually argues that we should allow mothers, not allow them, but we should not uh, prosecute mothers who killed our infants within the first six months of age. Okay? And this argument is being accepted by certain, certain pockets. Um, Peter Singer goes even further and he says we should allow mothers to infanticide their children up to two years of age, okay? Because he, his view of what it means to be a functional person is different than than uh, Steven Pinker's. Now you understand what I'm saying to you, okay? This view uh, that that uh, abandons the idea of a metaphysic or of a soul, they have they're taking their evolutionary theory to this logical extreme. All right, and this is what secularization means. Now you and you and I, as Christians, we believe that our humanist is tied to what? It's tied to our soul, right? Our humanist is tied to who we are as as a person, which is different than our physical body. So our soul is what makes us human, not our body or our functional states. And on that idea, if the soul exists at conception, then the soul is what makes you human, and you are human from the moment of conception, right? Regardless of what you can do. So you see, the Christian idea has been totally chucked, based for this for this naturalistic idea. And this is a, this is an example of secularization. What happens too? They already view that people with a Christian worldview are mentally unstable or uh, mm-hmm. damaged goods when they apply that line of thinking sure. to that model. And what you're bringing up is who makes the rules? <laughs> who defines what functional states are human and, and not human? Right, It becomes almost subjective. This goes a long way back because I got a copy of the speech given by a, a medical officer in the Canadian Army at the end of World War II. Uh-huh. In which he said that anybody raised in a Christian home is is mentally screwed up. And sure. We this is to other and psychiatrists. We need to correct this. Sure. This sure. Is 1946. Right, right. And that that's that's an unpopular idea these days. Um, defining dysfunction uh, from a naturalistic worldview is going to be very interesting. What does it mean to be dysfunctional? Yeah. But, you know, the funny thing is, we do this and we look at it real brief. So you take somebody like Governor Ventura who rank on the Christians that did not rank on the Muslims or the uh, sure. Jewish people. Sure. It seems to be they're ranking on the Christians because the Christians, in their mind, buy, stand in the way of things that they would like to change. Right, right. And really, they're fighting against our, our heritage, right? Yes. Because Christianity has been around for a long time. It's an easy target. Um, I, but it, it's a, that's a good observation. All right, so this is, this is the situation we find ourselves in in which we find ourselves, sorry for the bad grammar there and uh, I want to I paint a picture of why this actually happened, uh, what was the situation that brought this about. Uh, primarily uh, three things happened, uh, two areas of influence uh, caused this situation to come about and then the church did something that I think was a mistake historically. Now let me talk about the two areas uh, of, uh, of influence that caused the situation to come about. The first area was that of philosophy, that of philosophy. Around the time of um, David Hume and Immanuel Kant, uh, these guys were starting to pitch certain views about knowledge. Okay, there was a, there was a change in the way that people looked at knowledge. Prior to Locke and Hume and Kant, people simply believed that they knew things and they could know. There was there were simple things that they could know. For instance, that they existed, that there was something uh, transcendent to the human person, to the body, that that could exist. Right? They believed that. Um, that if uh, there were cause-effect relationships in the world that they always held. For instance, if, if I held something up and I dropped it and it fell, I could trust that that cause rela- cause-effect relationship held all the time. Well, what Locke and Hume and Kant did, they came along and they started questioning all these things. Okay? Kant uh, taught us that you can't know anything beyond the physical world. Anything beyond the five senses is not knowable. Okay? He had a very complex argument for why that was true. Uh, uh, David Hume questioned the, um, the reliability of sense perception and the reliability of cause-effect relationships. Hume argued something like, the only reason we believe in cause-effect relationships is because they've always held, they've always held that way. So the only reason we believe that a ball is going to fall out of my hand when I drop it is because it's always held, uh, fell to the ground when I've dropped it. But there's no guarantee that the next time I drop the ball, it's going to float in midair, that it's not going to float in midair. There's no guarantee that it's not going to fly upward. So the only reason we believe that the cause-effect relationship holds is because that's the way it's always been. But we can't be sure, we can't be certain, that can't be an area of knowledge because it may not happen that way next time. There's no guarantee. Now, some of you are looking at me like, that's ridiculous. And and the way I'm presenting it, of course I have to do it very quickly, but um, the point isn't, isn't whether or not you buy the argument. The point is that the universities bought it. Okay, and they picked up on this, this idea that knowledge um, that we normally, things that we normally took as knowable were no longer know, knowable. Okay? And so we have this uh, dichotomy now. The only thing that we can know is what uh, we experienced with our five senses. Um, things that we normally took as, as guaranteed knowledge now, long, uh, now are being called into question. But at the same time, science was making extreme headway in, uh, in, in areas that were very practical to people. Okay? For instance, science was um, producing things like, uh, like aspirin and medical advances. And what people that normally believed would have believed in God, what they were doing is seeing these advances. They would say, well, I can go to my minister and he prays for me when I'm sick or I have a headache, and I only get better you know, maybe 50% of the time. But if I take this aspirin, my headache always goes away. You know? and, they, and they started seeing these relationships. And science was really doing a lot for people. Giving them creature comforts uh, if I break my arm science science is uh, the, the the hospital the doctor can set my arm and gangrene doesn't set in and i don't lose my arm that's a miracle. that's amazing whereas if I go to the church the, the the minister prays for me, but you know most of the time people end up dying okay so science was making these these great advances and they were showing people that uh, that, that we can control the world we can we can uh, overcome uh, uh, death by um, by uh, uh, being too cold, by, by uh, giving people heat, you know, and running water and all these kinds of things. And science was doing a tremendous amount in, the, in this uh, period and uh, showing people that uh, that they can actually tame the world. Plus, Darwin comes along and he was providing answers for things that only previously the church was providing answers for, namely where we came from, how we got here, right? He provided a theory Even though at the time the theory was flatly rejected by most scientists. Did you know that? Evolution, uh, when it was first pitched, was not even viable. But he presented an idea that made it possible to explain how we got here. So now, science is taking away the authority of the church to explain even that. Now science can provide us a, a means by which we can explain how we got here. What left is there for the church to do? There was very little left for the church to do except to provide comfort provide emotional healing for the grieving and uh, if if what psychologists tell us uh, is true even that's going away right you can take drugs now to get rid of your depression you don't need need the church for that anymore so the church slowly started losing its cultural authority and its influence and science took over now the fact that this was happening really you know the church could have dealt with it, right? The church could have dealt with it. They could have said, yeah, this is happening, but we need to we need to overcome this because this is not true. The, 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 what science is telling us, even though it's, it's wonderful, is not uh, giving us the full answer. But instead, the church did something that I think was critical. The church internalized and it privatized, okay? It couldn't deal with the arguments that were being presented. It couldn't deal with the, the uh, onslaught of science. And so what it did instead of trying to change the university and argue against the scientists, it went off and started seminaries. Did you know that uh, as Princeton started to go more liberal and abandon uh, fundamental Christianity, uh, Westminster Seminary was started as a response to that. So uh, what happened was all the Christian professors at Princeton left Princeton and started Westminster. Now who's left at Princeton to fill the gaps? The secular, right? The secular individuals. And so now Princeton goes fully liberal. And the Christians, who attends Westminster? Are, are secular people, the power people in the culture going to attend Westminster? No, Christians are going to test, attend Westminster because they're running away from Princeton. All right, And Princeton was already, already a very powerful school. So you have Princeton teaching science, which is already very uh, much accepted in the culture. Westminster teaching theology, which was being slowly eroded away in the culture. And so now Princeton becomes a cultural authority, and they're the primary uh, uh, leaders to whom the culture looks. You see the situation, how this, how this whole picture uh, comes together. So all these things were happening at once. So the advance of science, the propagation of certain philosophies, and the privatization of the church all contributed to our current situation. All right, They all con- con- contributed to our certain, uh, current situation. Now there's much more to be said on this and I'm going to defer you to, uh, to Turner to fill in the gaps. Another book, uh, by the way, that I'll recommend is Moreland's uh, Love Your Guy With All Your Mind and he deals with some of that in this book as well. This is another fine, uh, fine volume. Okay. All right, I've got just a few minutes left and I want to talk about a solution. Okay, In seven minutes. What can we do? Okay? Do we wring our hands and say, well, we're in big trouble, the secularists are going to win, we have nothing to say? What do we do to solve the problem? I think there are two primary areas that we as a church need to concentrate on. And you folks, as educators, I think are are pivotal. Okay, You folks are the ones that are going to actually change the world. And that's why I count it as a great privilege to be able to talk to you uh, this afternoon. But what can we do as a church? First of all, we need to develop a vibrant, robust, caring community, Christian culture, out of which we can affect change. Okay, That means we need to do things to develop community in our churches. We need to cultivate a people that care about one another, that care about each other's needs, that are concerned for um, for our well-being, both intellectually and physically. And we need to, to work hard to develop this uh, in, in, our, in our people. All right? Let me tell you, folks, community is not going to happen on Sunday mornings. Okay? If your church people uh, and, and the people you work with are just relying on Sunday mornings for community, it's not going to happen. Okay? Community happens when... Um, when you get together outside of church And you meet together To, to, to be real And talk about real concerns that people have Alright You can't develop community on two hours on a Sunday morning And that means that you're going to have to Open your homes up That means you're going to have to invite people in for dinner That you may not know or that you want to get to know That means you're going to have to uh, Find out what needs exist And help meet those needs all right? So what, what I'm talking about now Is developing a community out of which We can affect change and that community has to be tightly tightly knit and tightly uh, bound together. All right. The second thing, then, is that we need to return to a high commitment to the development of the life of the mind. We need to return to a high commitment to the development of the life of the mind. This means that we need to really beef up our Christian education. All right. Right now, the church, primarily what happens in Christian education is is that people get together uh, to talk about how to help their family situation, um, how to raise kids. Now, that's, that stuff's good. That's important. All right, It is important. But we need to go beyond that in our Christian education programs. We need to provide people with, um, with a rigor uh, where we're teaching them about theology. We're teaching them about the soul. Okay, What does it, what does it mean to have a soul? What does this, how does the soul function in your worldview? What does the incarnation mean? Can you articulate the incarnation and teaching people how to articulate what their incarnation is all about? Teaching people how to deal with um, a situation where someone says that the material world is all there is. How do we, how do we deal with that, that statement? How do we help people to talk about transcendence? We need to be offering classes like that. We need to be offering classes for people in specific disciplines to better integrate their worldview with their discipline. For instance, if you're a, a Christian nurse, We need to be having Sunday school classes that talk about how to integrate your Christian worldview with your nursing or if you're a homemaker or if you're a computer programmer or if you're a ditch digger. How does your Christian worldview integrate with what you do for a living? Maybe if your church has a lot of Christian nurses, you want to have a course in bioethics and talk about how bioethics, how the situations they're facing regarding bioethics can be dealt with from a Christian perspective. What is the ethical thing to do when... Uh, you have a patient who's terminally ill and on a life support system. How do you think about that from a Christian perspective? And we need to be providing our people with a means and a grounds for thinking about these things from a Christian worldview. And then, like I said at the very beginning of the seminar, our defense of the faith comes out of that. So we need to return to a high commitment to the life of the mind, and from that, our defense will come. Now, I apologize. I've had to summarize so much here. I, couldn't, I can't get into any real depth on any of these issues, and that's and unfortunate. Um, but uh, I want to leave here. Uh, I want to do two things. First of all, I want to encourage you. I uh, want to remind you of the fact that the Northwest is growing extremely rapidly, and uh, we have a lot of work to do as, church, as a church body. We have a lot of work to do. The opportunities here are tremendous, and I, I gave you a lot of bad news today. And I, I don't want you to leave here discouraged. I want you to leave here encouraged because I think we are still in a position where we can affect change. And we, as a body of people, uh, with the Lordship of, with the, the the fact that Christ is our Lord ahead of us, we can really do a lot of work to affect change in our culture. And so I want to leave. Uh, I want you to leave here encouraged. The second thing I want to I want to do for you is to provide you with some resources that may help you. Uh, I want to. Uh, um, tell you about an organization that I'm a part of. I'm the uh, secretary treasurer for the Evangelical Philosophical Society, and I have an example of the journal that we produce. It's a very fine journal. Um, most of the articles in this journal will be over your heads. I'll just tell you, tell you right off. It, these are very technical articles, but it's good to read stuff that's over your head. Okay, It's good to stretch yourself intellectually. Um, I have membership applications if you're interested in this. The e- EPS uh, is a group of evangelicals. There's 700 of us now that are part of this organization. And we, there's articles that are produced. There are yearly meetings, regional meetings, where people talk about issues related to Christian evangelicalism as it relates to our theology and our philosophy. It's a very fine uh, organization. I want to I recommend that to you. The other thing I want to recommend to you is uh, some classes that I'll be teaching that you may, be of, uh, you may find uh, interesting. I'm going to be teaching a class this spring. It actually starts on the 9th of August. Uh, entitled Introduction to Critical Thinking. I'm an elder at uh, Edgewood Community Church in Edgewood, Washington. It's a Sunday school class, so there's no charge, so I'm not trying to sell you anything. But it's going to be a class that I think uh, if some of you aren't plugged into a church, may be of some help to you. And I can give you some more information on that. We're going to talk about logic. We're going to talk about how to recognize bad arguments, how to formulate good arguments, and to articulate our faith faith really well. And then in the fall, I'm going to be teaching a class uh, entitled Christian Knowledge, and we're going to be talking about Christian epistemology, which is simply the study of knowledge. And we're going to be looking at what it means to believe. Uh, do you have to have arguments to believe in God? Um, I gave an example of, of looking at the uh, orange, the orange uh, uh, vest, and I claimed that I knew that, but I don't have any arguments for it. Can we believe in God in the same way? We're going to talk about the difference between belief and uh, faith and knowledge. What are the distinctions there? So that's another class that may be of help to you. All my classes are taught at the college level, so you'll be required to purchase a textbook and do homework. But I think that the classes uh, will help you to learn something, and you'll leave better equipped to uh, do the work of ministry. All right, that's all I have. I appreciate your attention. That concludes this program. This material was recorded and produced by Mobile Tape Company, Incorporated of Valencia, California. More information about other available media may be obtained by calling one 800 369 5718 or on our website